This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Oh, listen, I'm telling you, this one is right out of the news headlines across the United States. When anything uh, gets banned, a movie gets banned, a record uh, recording of some music gets banned, in any unit of society, that means automatically it's going to sell 10 times more uh, than before. But what happens when something is banned that people have been reading for decades and decades and is considered a literary masterpiece? Banned not long ago in some part of the United States. Brave New World. Band of Mice and Men. Band Harry Potter. Oh, not just one. All of them. Band Lord of the Flies. You may not put To Kill a Mockingbird into our library. You may not bring that home if you're a student. Catcher in the Rye. And this is, of course, one of my absolute favorites as a band book, The Nazis would not have allowed, under any circumstances, the publication or distribution of Huckleberry Finn. (laughs) Vile, corrupt. That giggle, by the way, in the background, was perhaps a familiar voice to you. Some say more familiar than mine. Doggone it. Reverend David Felton, he's back. Guest that has been on The God Show probably more than I have. Pastor of the Fountains United Methodist Church, Fountain Hills in Arizona. We always call on him uh, for the best of all possible reasons. He's really an interesting guest with opinions. So give me an opinion on this, United Methodist Church. How united is the Methodist Church, David? <laughs> you just go for the go for the gut here. Um, well, it is not very united right now, and for a lot of the same reasons your lead-in suggests about the kind of banning culture that we're living in. And uh, right now we're experiencing what some call a schism because we've got a number of churches that have moved to what we're calling disaffiliate from the main denomination primarily over the acceptance of and the affirmation of and the inclusion of LGBTQ plus people. Um, It's also been expanded to be just an interpretation of scripture as well. Um, And so there are a lot of churches that are choosing to leave and go to a newly created denomination called the Global Methodist Church that has been created specifically to bring together churches who have chosen to exclude people. And I think that's a bad reason to call together people, but it's not out of the ordinary. In fact, many of the churches that are making this move are the same churches that in 1845 left the Methodist Church to form the Methodist Episcopal Church South in order to defend slavery. So this has been going on for a while. Oh, yeah, they're the same, and the, the issue is bigotry. Um, and, you know, then it was about slavery, and now it's about LGBTQ people. So if you could get, if you, David, if you could get in most Methodist churches 
uh, a fabulous church organist at a tremendously low price. And you would be the envy of other churches in your community. But that organist is gay. Uh, then he would not be welcome to be on the staff. Well, let's say, uh, because I'm a saxophone player, I would not be that thrilled with getting an organist, no matter how good they are. Um, but, uh, yeah, in a lot of churches, it's been don't ask, don't tell kind of situation. But, indeed, there are a lot of churches that would not want to have someone like that. And even despite the fact that right now organists are an incredibly valuable commodity because the organ as an instrument uh, in religious settings— um, you know, has become obsolete. And there are very few people that are going into the study of organ to a degree that they would be able to do anything. So in a lot of churches, you have Wanda McGillicuddy, who's been playing the organ for 139 years. No, but and wait, no, no tell me her name again. Wanda McGillicuddy? No, that's one that you would make up. She's been in every church I've served. <laughs> so, um, but yeah. Um, she's she's there and she's playing for uh, the same people and it's it's a sad situation. Is there a great demand for saxophonists leading the choir? Uh, I would not say demand. I'd say a tolerance of. But uh, <laughs> when you're the pastor, I guess they let you get away with a lot of things. And he is the pastor of the Fountains United Methodist Church. Fountain Hills, Arizona, if that sounds attractive to you by name, and because this is an international broadcast, if you happen to be in Manila right now, and uh, you just simply don't like the climate, you don't like the political atmosphere, Fountain Hills would be a nice place to move. Now, if you happen to be a Methodist, if you happen to be a traditional Methodist, then you might decide to give David Felton a chance uh, and then you might walk away shaking your head, <laughs> saying, no, wait a minute, that isn't at all what I studied. That isn't what happened in Sunday school. But, David, there's always, and at least there seems to be, a morality definition problem within Christianity in general. This is not a discussion of rights and wrongs within Methodism. We're just simply talking about society. Uh, most of the time associated with some religious organization, but not necessarily. There always seems to be a, a definition of what morality really means to that congregation, that family, sometimes that political leader. And lately, it seems to focus on books that are acceptable or not acceptable in public school libraries. You just heard me talking about what would be considered uh, a major shelf of classics. Uh, well, and, I would include the Bible on that shelf of offensive classics, if you're going to go that way. As you have on a number of occasions yeah. on this program. With all the murder, rape, pillaging, adultery, and violence, and um, yeah, it's it's uh, the disaster. The Bible can be put in the category of a disaster novel of epic proportions. That's you know the they... mistake that they made, though, in the Bible and a number of other uh, tomes <laughs> is, is uh, well, I'm going to name one mistake. I know that you have several in mind. <laughs> but 
the uh, the, uh, the military leaders uh, that were ready to take over the world would burn and pillage, pillage and burn. And see, the mistake that they made, sometimes they would burn before they pillaged. <laughs> and it was stupid because nobody wants burnt pillage. Absolutely. Not high on my list that? either. Would yeah. you use that in the next uh, sermon? I've, I'm writing it down. Okay. So, yeah. Would you please also tell me about why some would argue the point about including the, including the Bible with Harry Potter and Brave New World? Well, I think that if you're going to be so OCD about the topics that a lot of people are trying to protect their children from, including the violence and the sex and the non-monogamous marriage examples. Um, I mean, the list is very long of things that are held up as normal in the Bible, and that in a lot of cases, including things like genocide, are practiced by none other than God. And that's embarrassing because that gives people permission to say, well, if God chooses to solve God's problems through genocide, then it must be okay for us to do so as well. Now, that's an extreme example, but it certainly has not been without practice without precedent in our world. There are people who are listening right now whose aorta just closed uh, as a result of listening to you say that because the Bible is removed from all criticism because it is the word of God, a gift to us. And because there are stories historically in the Bible, it isn't something like Harry Potter that would tempt children into the world of wizardry. Well, I've got to say, when I first arrived at Boston University to do my master's degree um, in divinity, which was biblical studies and history, um, I was taken aback because I was a, you know, a young graduate of ASU. I was going away from home for the first time, and I everything was new. And I'm looking at my curriculum that they've handed me, and the syllabus includes biblical criticism, and that took me aback. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't expect to be criticizing the Bible. And I, you know, what does this mean? And I came, quickly came to realize that it doesn't mean we're going to be criticizing the Bible. We're going to be reading the Bible critically. We're going to be using our rational minds. We're going to be using critical thinking to analyze it as literature, to analyze it in the context of history in the context of its socioeconomic reality, the political reality. We're going to use different traditions, different disciplines like archaeology and sociology, uh, history. We were going to be doing it all to analyze what was in the Bible based on how and why it was written for the people who first received it, and then how it should be interpreted now for a very different situation. And so... That was a new way of thinking for me that I've spent my career trying to bring other people along to the same way of reading the Bible. That's the way anybody who goes to a mainline or Roman Catholic seminary is going to be trained to think. 
and it has been for over 150 plus years. Uh, but today we've got kind of a more broad expression of that in people's fear and demonization of critical race theory. They think, oh my gosh, you're going to be critical of my race. You're going to criticize white people. And I'm such a snowflake. I can't, you know, be self-reflective about my race. And it's like, no, we're not going to be critical about whiteness, but we are going to use critical thinking to examine how race affects our whole society. And so, yeah, there may be some places where we're going to want to step back and say, yeah, you know, slavery wasn't such a good idea. And perhaps we need to take steps to resolve some of the consequences that are still echoing through our society. Some of the injustices that have been in place since for 400 years. But if you do that, you will make my child uncomfortable. Okay. Your point? (laughs) Their point is, I don't want my child to be uncomfortable. I also don't want him or her exposed to an assumption that whiteness is evil. Can I tell you how uncomfortable I was in math class and geometry class, all my schooling? And you know that's not what they're talking about. I know, but it's still, there is something to be said for disequilibrium in education, where you are exposed to things that you didn't know before. Um, And I'm dealing in the religious world with a lot of people who are evangelical and fundamentalist Christians who... Uh, for all intents and purposes, are adults who still believe in Santa Claus. And, you know, just name the different religious or theological perspectives that they cling to, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And any effort to bring them up to speed, how maybe that isn't actually supported in the Bible. Maybe that actually isn't in the Bible at all. They don't want to hear it because it makes them uncomfortable and maybe it would require them to change the way they think about the divine or their relationship with the divine or the way they live in the world. And I think that's something that is not just a religious problem, not just an education problem. It is a societal problem we have now because we have gotten to a point where this hyper-individualization of the, you know, of the American dream of rugged individualism you know it, we everybody's on their own we can do it on our own we don't need anybody else to do it that kind of john wayne swagger that i don't need anybody else this sovereign citizenship crap i mean no there is no one that doesn't depend on countless countless other people to survive we are a, we are human beings who live in society and depend on one another to survive. And yet we've got so many people in a lot of large part, courtesy of the internet and other new developments where they can do their own research free from any conversation with others who might say, well, you know, maybe that's not exactly a great source of information for you to be drawing from. Um, They just take what they think feels comfortable and run with it. Uh, And then once you've established that in someone's brain, 
it's very hard to convince them otherwise. And that's one of the reasons why in our tradition of Methodism, and not even a lot of Methodists know this, and it's not secret, but I think it's a great unexposed rationale behind why Methodism is different from other denominations. And that is, we, the fancy word is called the quadrilateral, the quad for lateral, the even things, the four things that are equal. And they are scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. And scripture is, you know, holy writ. You know, what, has, what does the Bible say about this? Tradition is what has the church said about it? Um, experience is what, you know, what do I think about it? What's my personal experience with it? And reason is what makes sense? What's logical? And you've got to bring all of those together in any question in order to make a decision, to make an informed decision. But a lot of people, a lot of Christians, think that they can just go with Scripture, and that's all they need. And they're fooling themselves if they think they can read Scripture without bringing their own experience to it. And they try to, you know, you can't use reason because that's a tool of the devil. The devil uses reason. Oh, my gosh. So that's one of the challenges we have in the Methodist church that has partially led to our schism right now is people are mis people have different approaches to how to interpret scripture. And that's what's happening in our schools and in our culture right now. People are saying, well, my experience is this, and they won't let anyone else's opinion come into the situation. And I think that's something we've lost in our culture is the ability to have civil dialogue with one another and not agree, but not demonize one another and say it's either this or that. You know, the world is very gray, and we need to find ways to get back to the way we used to tolerate one another's opinions and say, you know, our main goal is to have a healthy society, to create a world that has opportunities for everyone. In forensics, it's the difference between debate and discussion. And in this case, let me ask you, not as the minister uh, of the fountains, not even as a Methodist, but let me ask you as a parent, what it is that you say to the moms and dads who in many cases are the ones who stimulate the legislators and the school boards to create this ferment uh, regarding books and other things that should not be allowed in my child's life. The parent says, it's up to me as the parent. We're the ones who should be able to decide what the standards are and what my child is exposed to, your response as a parent. Right. I would say that it's the old states' rights argument from the Civil War, just even on a more micro level, that I've got, I've got my opinion, and I know, I know what I want to teach my child. Um, and it's taking it... Well, let me give you an example from my own experience. Uh, when my son, my eldest son, was going to uh, a Great Heart School here in town, uh, which is a charter school, 
um, and it has a very distinctive, conservative Roman Catholic bent to it. Um, and, you know, we knew what we were getting into when we sent him there, but his learning style fit with what they were doing in that kind of liberal arts style, dialogical kind of conversational education style. Um, well, surprise, one day my son came home with a history book and he was reading up and there in his history book in sixth grade was a picture and it, the caption said, um, Abraham leading the Israelites uh, into Canaan. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. Um, first of all, um, Abraham was not an Israelite. There was no such thing as Israel. Abraham wasn't even a Jew. There was no such thing as Jews. There was no such thing as Cana. Um, I mean, there was no such thing as Abraham. Abram was Abram, and he was from Chaldea, which, if you're keeping score, is Iraq. So how different is that when, you know, I who have studied the Bible and history know that, okay, look, most people that spend their lives studying this whole thing don't even think that Abraham was an historical character. He's an etiological character that was brought together by writers in the 6th and 5th century of Judaism to give people who were in exile in Babylon hope for the future. And they said, look, you know, even when we didn't have a place to be, you know, Yahweh called this, not even a Jew, into this new land and gave him all this land in perpetuity. Um, and so have hope, you know, there you will return. And, you know, in biblical language, that's all great. But fast forward 2,500 years and you've got sixth graders learning that this is history when it is not history. And you've got national governments acting as though it was history, like as though God was some sort of cosmic real estate agent who had handed out deeds to certain points, parts of the Middle East, and that people are still arguing and killing one another over claims that God has given them a certain piece of land, and by God, they are going to protect it. And so I had to go in and talk to the history teacher and say, this is not history. And I can't believe that you're teaching this. And he was mortified and, you know, took me into his office and said, uh, look, 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 I've got too many fundamentalist parents who are going to freak out if I actually tell them what you and I both know is true. So we got to work out some sort of compromise here because I've got to teach what's in this book, which of course comes out of Texas. Um, so I, we agreed that my son would answer the questions on the test based on what we discussed at home and not on what they were teaching in the school because that's not history. And so that's the compromise that we came to and that's what I think parents need to be vigilant on in their own relationships with their kids. If they are that committed to a particular way of being, then they need to get them into another school, which a lot of people choose to do, or they need to be vigilant with teaching their kids where they are as a family, where their beliefs are, and then make arrangements with the school and make arrangements with the kids that they know 
where we stand as a family. The parents may not necessarily be as well-versed as you are uh, in theology or history. But any topic, Pat, the parents, just because I have this opinion, and the teacher was saying, I can't impose your opinion on everybody else. And that's the point, is that you've got one parent making a complaint about a book in Florida, and all of a sudden, it's banned from all libraries in that district or that county. One parent is saying, now, hang on. That's, that's not democracy. Um, and it's certainly not celebrating the secular democracy that we claim to have as the United States of America. What if it isn't a matter of a historical uh, accuracy? What if it isn't uh, a matter of uh, being able to do research in any field and go back and say, well, no, see, that's inaccurate relative to the times that we have now uh, examined since then. What if it is a matter of the parental unit in Florida, coincidentally, uh, saying, this is offensive, this is pornographic, this is absolutely uh, I, uh, an intrusion into any sense of morality that we have in our family. This statue of David by Michael somebody. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and yet that just recently happened in a school in Florida, and the principal was given the choice of resigning or being fired because I believe it was a sixth grade Sixth grade, so we're talking about 11-year-olds on the average being exposed to frontal nudity in a 15-foot-high marble statue. (laughs) Right. Well, I think that so many of these arguments go back to our awareness of what our values are in Western civilization as a whole and what traditionally have been taught as as beauty, um, as something that is challenging to our way of thinking, uh, be it it the philosophers or economists or whoever else that uh, we're asking our children to read, uh, be it music. Um, You know, I I think about uh, the effort to burn the Beatles albums because John Lennon said, uh, we're more popular than Jesus. And he may very wi- likely have been correct, but uh, you know, we're going to the, burn them because that's what, what he suggested. But I think that in so many ways, we have isolated ourselves in little bubbles of self-righteousness. And we have not trained people to be able to process ways of seeing the world, ways of processing reality that are different from what we experienced as we were growing up. And I I mean, this is in religious circles. I mean, most people, the last significant religious education they had uh, was sixth grade Sunday school. They don't have anything past that. So it's a real challenge for those of us who are pastors to try and bring people along because they get upset about how, well, I've never heard of that. And I'm like, well, you know, 
it would help if you actually read the text. And I think that that, again, is one of the challenges we have as a society is to help people along the way to say, you know, we are a culture that values diversity. Um, and we were founded as a diverse culture. And that is one of the glories of what it is to be an American. And so part of that is being able to get along with one another and not be homogeneous, uh, but to have different ways of, of looking at things. Is that kind of idealistic? No, not at all. I think about all the ways that uh, the, you know, I think about how, uh, <laughs> you know, just in my own life, um, my favorite food is Asian food. And I go out of my way to find a good Asian restaurant. And yet I have friends who will not even broach uh, the thought of going to an Asian restaurant because they can't stand the thought. They have never tried it, but uh, they obviously think that there's something wrong with me because that is my favorite food. And I think it goes around to, you know, like right now, one of the huge arguments in education and our culture are diversity, equity, and inclusion campaigns. Um, there are a lot of corporations and there are a lot of institutions that are now hiring diversity, equity, and inclusion officers or administrators who work to guarantee that their corporation or their institution is including more people. Because guess what? Corporations like to make money. And they know that this is a, you know, statistically proven that the more diverse a corporation is, the more ideas that are being brought in from different you know, racial perspectives, gender perspectives, different cultural perspectives, uh, the more creative a company is and the more likely they are to create uh, products that are going to sell to more people and make more money. So diversity and inclusion is something that is of benefit to, to institutions and corporations, but somehow it's threatening to a lot of people in the wider world because they have not had the experience of interacting with people who are different than they are. Amazon, however, is not complaining about David. Uh, when your daughter was in sixth grade, how old is she now? 17, almost 18. Oh, okay. well, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. All right. Uh, when she was in sixth grade and she brought home uh, a book, The Great Art of the World, and David was there in all his glory. And, and there would have been no question in your mind, but if she had brought home in sixth grade a picture on her phone of an eighth grader that had sent his picture with the same kind of pose, uh, you would have gone to somebody. Absolutely. What's the difference? Well, I think the difference is what we're talking about, is the ability to discern between something that is of value because it is artistic and something that is being manipulative and trying to take advantage of people and trying to, uh, you know, get people to do things that are unhealthy. Or and unhealthy. the sixth graders' skill of discernment is where? 
in large part, it's in cooperation with the parent. And that is, again, why we come back to the parents being able to help the child make these decisions. But in a lot of cases, many of the parents don't know how to make those distinctions. Oh, and so therein you know, may be one of the problems. Well, I think, you know, the whole thing about critical race theory, another one of the buzzwords, C- CRT, is that, you know, like our own superintendent of public instruction here in Arizona ran on putting the kibosh on CRT. His sign said it, you know, you know, we're going to end CRT or, you know, something like that. And it's like, I can guarantee you, because I've talked to a lot of them, many of his supporters have no idea what CRT is. But by God, it sounds good. So he was able to capitalize on their ignorance and fear and motivate them to vote their fear. And so he got in again. And now he's going to be right back at uh, the same kind of racist-inspired kind of policies that he was implementing when he was first the superintendent of public instruction back over a decade ago. Isn't the fear, though, of many parents when it comes to critical race theory that they are concerned that their children are too unsophisticated at third, fourth, fifth grade socially that they aren't able at that age to discern exactly what did happen in those days of slavery, in the Civil War days, in that whole period of time, and since then, forms of slavery continuing, that they would not able, were not able to discern that we're not talking about all white people, all Caucasians, all non-black people being villainous. Right. Well, the first thing we need to be clear on is that CRT is not being taught anywhere in kindergarten through 12th grade or even in most colleges. It's usually uh, not even considered a topic until you get into very specific educational situations like legal and business situations where you're studying how race affects power and legal issues and business issues and all of that. And that's Mom and Dad don't care about the CRT letters. They just are concerned that their kids are getting a, a weighted prejudiced position. Say more about that. What do you mean? They want a to? weighted prejudiced position that at that period of time and in many cases since then, uh, that blacks are preyed upon by whites, that it's that, it's that broad uh, a statement. Right. I am of the opinion, and again, I've done my research, uh, (laughs) that racism is something that is taught. It's something that is acquired through exposure to parental influences and community influences, and that if children had a different environment in which to grow up in, where race was not an issue, then we would have a lot less uh, issue with discrimination between the races. And what's happening right now is that our society is so permeated with white supremacy that people can't even see it. And I think a lot of people get, you know, their dander up and they're like, oh, yeah, 
oh, what do you say white supremacy? I'm not wearing a pointy hood. I'm not burning a cross on someone's lawn. I'm like, no, nope, that's not what I'm talking about. White supremacy is a lot more subtle than that. And we see it in every institution in our society. We see it in the way our organizations are organized. We see it in the way our society uh, treats different people and the way laws are, are uh, meted out, the way judges judge, the way everything is done in this country. And so I think it's really important that when we consider how white supremacy is so infused in our society that we are able to talk about that and that we're able to help our children be able to identify when they see this happening. But the problem is that right now, the white majority in this country is terrified because if the trend continues as it is right now, Arizona will become a majority minority state in 2027. And Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, Virginia are right with us. Texas is already there. It's a majority minority state. And our country is going to be a majority minority country as early as 2041. And I think that a lot of people who have always assumed that America is a white country, a white Christian country are in a panic because they're like, what's going to happen to me and my power and my influence when all of a sudden non-white Christians have an equal influence in this country and they're terrified. That's what the whole, uh, you know, the Charlottesville chant about, you know, Jews will not replace us and all of that. There's this, you know, great replacement theory that is out there and people are panicked. And so I think a lot of parents feel justified in bolstering a sense of white pride or what have you in their children in order to guard against that inevitable future so that they can save the white race or something like that. And it's like they forget that there is only one race, and that's the human race. And yet people want to keep dividing us into different tribes and divvying up their idea of what is fair in resources or influence or justice or what have you. But from the standpoint of parental censorship in schools, libraries, and so on, uh, most of it is not related uh, to, uh, to race in America. Most of the time, the fear, the concern is uh, that their kids are learning about sex far too early or at all. So I'm asking you now, as someone who is a pastor slash teacher and as a parent, should any sex information be a part of classroom discussion? Let me go back and just say, I think that it is about race because of the number of books about Rosa Parks and, uh, you know, athletes and things like that, that have broken the color barrier and everything. Those are being banned as well. So there is a huge part 
of race that is in there, um, but also about teaching kids about sex. America is full of a bunch of prudes. I cannot believe it. See, that's a book. That's a book title that would be banned instantly. You Absolutely. know that. Yeah. And commie. A commie, pinko, <laughs> left-wing minister. Yeah. Well, I think about my own upbringing and how it was just such an amazing difference from the way my kids have grown up now. Um, and, and, you know, how I didn't get the talk from my parents. It was kind of left up to, uh, to me to find out things um uh, not to not to much success i, I might add um you think that was a good idea no part? it was not and and i look now about how my kids from probably too early of an age had access through either computers or their phones or whatever to all the wisdom and pornography in the world. And moms and dads have essentially given up. They've surrendered to the screen and they said, okay, we probably are not going to be able to be successful about that. However, I'm talking about the classroom. Again, what about the criticism that there is just too much uh, in social studies, even as young, we are told, first and second grade, uh, that there's just too much human intimacy and sexuality being taught to kids far too early. Well, I would bring people's attention to the fact that those states, primarily red states, who have brought an end to sex education in their public schools and who ban any kind of access to, uh, uh, to uh, birth control or anything like that, have the highest out-of-wedlock birth rates in the country. Uh, those places that have churches influencing the culture to teach abstinence and the whole just wrong-headed purity culture of the evangelical church from the 80s and 90s, which is just incredibly... Um, in, incredibly wrong-headed, um, only led to more and more pregnancies and more and more kids experimenting and fewer and fewer of them having access or any knowledge about birth control of any kind. Isn't, but, sex, ed, isn't sex ed, though, primarily a high school course? No, it's actually, there are things, I remember in my elementary school where, you know, we were, we had a, a sex education where the kids, boys were taking one room, the girls were taking in the other, and you have parents had to get, per, you know, give permission to, to do that. How and young? parents did. How young? God, I was probably uh, seventh grade. Um, we, are, we are told that those, uh, if, not, uh, if not formal classroom uh, categories, that there are first and second and third graders being exposed to uh, sex education in some form or another. Yeah, I'm not aware of where that is happening at all. That's just, you know, anecdotes that people continue to spew that are, uh, you know, continue to be repeated in the echo chamber. Would it be a bad idea that early? Well, I think if it's that early, I think you probably want to make sure parents are involved. Um, certainly, 
when people say we can't talk about, uh, you know, uh, Maria's Maria's dads um, mm-hmm. are coming in to meet with the teacher, um, and for some parents that would be an offensive exposure to their children of sexuality because they don't want their children to be exposed to the fact that the Maria, that Maria has two dads. Um, oh my gosh. Um, that can be a problem. Um, is it the problem for Maria's two dads? No, uh, not anymore. Thankfully in, in, in this country, you know, two dads can have a Maria. Um, Perhaps not a problem for Maria either. No. Um, and the problem is with the parents who have not caught up with just because they don't think that's okay, that they can't impose their opinion on everybody else in the country. So they have to, as parents, take responsibility to say, uh, Jimmy, um, I understand that your classmate Maria has two dads. Uh, we need to talk about that. Um, that may be okay for them, but that's not okay for us. And this is why, and blah, blah, blah. That's the conversation that I think parents need to be mature enough to have. But they would rather have the school uh, create rules that get them out of doing their job as parents. Isn't that the way it's always been? I haven't been around long enough to know if it's always been that way. (laughs) Well, what about the subject, though, of um, Maria's dad is now Maria's mom? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have, a, I have a, a, an acquaintance. In fact, the first church I served in as an intern, uh, the pastor was incredibly conservative, and we didn't agree on hardly anything. Um, but, um, you know, he had a, a son and a daughter, the daughter of which was, who was absolutely beautiful and who he made uh, very clear that I had no chance with, so get it out of my mind. Um, <laughs> and the son, who was a very, you know, uh, uh, macho kind of guy, and he was going to go into, uh, you know, he wanted to be in the FBI or CIA and law enforcement and all like that. Didn't make it into the FBI, law enforcement, whatever. Um, so he ended up going into the military, and he was a Marine or Army, I'm not sure which. Um, but it was early on in, in that part of his life that he started to realize that he was not comfortable in his body as a man. And so when he came back from the military and he, um, he was in a, uh, an intimate relationship with a woman, um, they were very honest with one another about, hey, I'm not really uh, certain about my sexuality, but where I am at right now, let's get married. We're, we love one another. So they got married as man and woman. And they had three kids. Um, and it finally got to the point where, um, you know, Chris was like, I, I am not comfortable and I'm going to go through the transition to become a woman. Mm. And his wife said, well, I love you, um, for you, not the fact that you're a man or a woman and I, the parts really don't matter. Now, She's a much better woman than I would ever be, you know. So they are still married, even though he has had a full physical transition wow. to be a woman now. And they are married as two women, and they have been raising three kids who are now teenagers, one of whom is non-binary, I think. 
Um, and anyway, he works for a major corporation. And guess what? He is the head of their uh, diversity division Isn't in helping other people make the transition. And his corporation valued his abilities so much that they paid for the entire transition. Do you remember what the name of the company is? I'm thinking that it was Dell. Um, they deserve some recognition. Absolutely. And so now he goes around and trains other corporate uh, leadership on how to replicate that kind of diversity and that kind of inclusion uh, in order to get the best possible workers, no matter... And you got to believe that you know, people who are interested in getting transition surgery are are going to go with a company that is going to offer to pay that in full sure. because they want their skills. And so I remember getting a call from his father, the pastor who I worked with, who we didn't agree on anything. And we had a tearful conversation for like an hour about how he said, I can't believe this, but going through this transition with my son, I've had a complete change of heart. Mm. And he's written part of a book on how that has changed Sorry, because he loved his son, now daughter, more than he loved whether this person was male or female. And that he was with Chris through all of the transition and everything because he wanted to be there for his son, now daughter. Wow. And so it can happen. The change can happen. And it usually happens when somebody has a personal relationship with someone they truly love and can't imagine abandoning because something like that changes. When it comes to banning books, when it comes to uh, protesting the existence of written ideas or uh, televised ideas or dramatic ideas uh, with whom, uh, with which you disagree, uh, where does the First Amendment come in? as far as David Felton is concerned. Free speech is the first one that we had as far as an amendment is concerned. Absolutely. And I think that's why the First Amendment needs to be practiced fully and not just conditionally. Like right now in Texas, there's a bill called uh, 1515 that's going through the legislature that would require every schoolroom to have prominently displayed in a conspicuous place, the Ten Commandments. And that is moving through the Texas legislature. And it will likely, with the current Texas legislature, become law in the next, you know, foreseeable few weeks. And so, you know, for me, you know, my first question is, uh, all right, which Ten Commandments? Because there are at least two in the Bible, and they're different. And you have to ask, which version are you going to use? The one that says, do not kill or do not murder. And what about Those church and state? Those are two different state? things. Pardon me? What about church and state? Right, and the separation of church and state. I mean, you've got, you know, you know, I've got some people who have been suggesting, well, that'll be great because it'll open up the, the floodgates because then we can put up the tenets of Zoroastrianism and Baha'i and, and, you know, just... You know, we can bring in all, and that's true because that's opening the floodgates. But that's when the First Amendment, when free speech is taken seriously. But what what a lot of people are trying to do is 
is misrepresent free speech to include only their idea of what proper speech is. And we it's have like, also, by the way, excuse me, David, but because we're really tight on time and because you always become more profound in the last three minutes, <laughs> I want to make sure that you've gotten a, a, a fair shake when it comes to the time. Uh, but we have to be fair to recognizing the fact that we have talked about Texas, Mississippi, uh, and Arizona, and a number of southern and southern-leaning geographic areas, and a number of the book-banning uh, uh, elements that we're talking about regarding uh, legislative moves, state uh, decisions by state, uh, by by, uh, by state elected officials involving education, uh, they have been New York, uh, Pennsylvania. Ohio. So it's not just the South. And I, and I say that because I want people to not get comfy with the fact that, oh, well, we don't live there. So since we're talking about an international audience right now, and whether you can speak for Melbourne, Australia or not, at least advise the families that live in the United States what they can do if they find that this kind of activity is being forced on their public school? Well, the first thing I would suggest is that they find others who are of like mind in order to organize and get themselves in front of the legislators that are about to make that decision. And then to organize further to make sure that they are voting to bring in people who are in the future gonna be less likely to be manipulated by the powers that are well organized on the ultra-conservative right, uh, who are super uh, well-financed and organized in order to push through their particular agenda. Where do they find those people? Well, you can find them all online. You can find a variety of places. Groups like AU, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, they're at au.org. Um, they are great uh, to help you find out where you can find people that are gonna assist you in this kind of thing. And there are all kinds of grassroots organizations in every state that are going to help people um, organize to push back against those who would be trying to move us away from an inclusive, diverse culture into this Christian nationalist idea of a very uh, milquetoast, narrow, uh, homogenous way of looking at the world and experiencing the world. And remember, if uh, you are one of those people who say, I don't want Harry Potter taken off the shelves of my kid's library, you might be accused of being pro-wizard. And we may need a few more of those, too, in charge of a lot of things. This is Pat McMahon saying thank you to Reverend David Felton and thank you to all of you who even just one time check in on The God Show.